Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on carbon and deforestation and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, Global Market Strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Dr. Sarah Kapnick, Senior Climate Scientist and Sustainability Strategist, and Mira Pandit, Global Market Strategist. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here with you both. So as we all know, policymakers around the world have adopted net zero emissions targets as they aim to reach them in the next several decades. Obviously, reducing emissions is critical to achieving this goal, um, but at the same time, completely eliminating emissions simply isn't possible. And so more and more what we're finding is that strategies to offset emissions are really a crucial piece of the puzzle. And so with that as the backdrop, I'm really happy to have both Sarah and Mira here joining me today for a discussion on these topics as we work to unpack exactly what investors should understand going forward. And so with that said, you know, Sarah, would love to have you kick things off. In the current environment, the primary way to offset emissions is very much through carbon pricing initiatives. But what are the types of carbon pricing initiatives and really how have they evolved over the course of the past 20 years? Carbon pricing mechanisms were created to create an external cost of greenhouse gas emissions. It's actually not just carbon, it's actually all greenhouse gases, which is the majority of it is carbon dioxide, but it also includes methane and nitrous oxide and fluorinated gases. The idea of the pricing mechanism was to lead to this more efficient management of emissions because ultimately the cost of it is borne by societies and ecosystems. It's damages to crops due to heat waves, due to drought. It's damages to property due to sea level rise. So the idea is to create a mechanism that is now pricing these issues and these damages that can happen. So specifically, a carbon tax sets a specific price of carbon dioxide equivalent per ton it generates revenues from greenhouse gas emitters. Then an emissions trading scheme is referred to often in the United States as cap and trade, places a limit on total emissions, and the price can actually fluctuate, so it fluctuates with all the trading activities. So both a carbon tax and emissions trading system can be sector-specific or they can cover multiple sectors. What we've been seeing internationally is they've often started with the biggest emitters in energy, and then they've expanded to other sectors like cement, or agriculture or others to try and limit greenhouse gas emissions across different sectors. This all started to really develop because of expectations for international agreements and starting to regulate emissions worldwide. Often people start talking about the Paris Agreement and how that was really a turning point in regulations globally. So the Paris Agreement was signed in December 2015. 196 party countries signed on to it. It was the first legally binding agreement for nations to combat climate change through emissions reductions goals. And when it was signed, the vast majority of regulations at the time were only in Europe. It was only 10% of emissions globally were covered. But since then, there's been some slow growth in emissions covered worldwide under these regulations. With this explosion in the last year, we're now over 21% of all emissions globally are now covered under regulation. And the reason for that is this lead up into COP26, which is happening in Glasgow in November, is expected that there'll be another treaty, another agreement on how to regulate emissions worldwide. And so countries have been starting to push for their regulations so they can show leadership leading into COP26. 
Excellent. That was a great intro. Would love to get a little bit more color here and really get a sense of how carbon pricing needs to improve in order for us to achieve net zero in line with the various targets uh, that have been laid out by policymakers and governments around the world. So right now, there's two different ways that we're regulating carbon worldwide. The carbon taxes have been set on like a minimum value of carbon. Academic analysis of the true cost of carbon, how it affects everything, plus policy analysis sets this price. So the highest price worldwide is actually in Sweden. It's $140 per metric ton of carbon. However, on the exchanges, the pricing is more like 50 US dollars and below. And so there's this mismatch between the carbon taxes worldwide have been set much higher. And there's expectation that with more regulation, with more expectation of pricing into carbon, that these prices may go up going in the future, particularly with more regulation and international regulation on carbon. Academics have been putting up more of a price on carbon above $200 potentially and seeing it going higher than that. And so I think we should expect that pricing on carbon will go up more as the damages also are seen and are become greater with climate change. The cost of carbon also from that becomes much higher. In Europe, also to try and deal with problems with the fact that Europe is trying to regulate carbon within the EU versus externally. In the EU Fit for 55 package, they just included a cross-border carbon adjustment. And the reason they did that is they're worried about leakage. They're worried that carbon activities, trying to limit activities within the EU, will just lead to activities outside the EU. So they're trying to put now adjustments for the fact that they've been regulating in Europe and there aren't necessarily regulations externally. And so I think we'll see an increase in this type of regulation that will try and monitor carbon and try and make sure that activities, if it's regulated in one place, will not lead to higher emissions externally. I certainly agree that when it comes to a lot of this, when there's a will, there's often a way. And I think that global coordination is probably particularly important in allowing the proverbial ship to continue sailing forward here. Mira, I'd love to bring you into the conversation. You know, we're talking about taxes. Investors, more often than not, are wary of any environment or situation where taxes are moving higher. But at the same time, there's a clear revenue implication of carbon taxes. And so how might that revenue generated be used? We talk a lot about in the United States, increasing taxes in an effort to pay down our debt. But thinking more about the environmental side of things, what are some possible applications for these revenues in an effort to achieve net zero over time? That's right. I mean, while tax is designed to change the behavior of the largest emitters, it's still a source of revenue. And in fact, global revenue from carbon pricing is about $45 billion. And it can be used in several ways. One way is to fund green initiatives. So you're not only facilitating that reduction in emissions, but also you're advancing some of these green projects. And that could mean funding for infrastructure, like upgrading our grid to make it more suitable for renewables. It could mean building more electric vehicle charging stations. On the research and development side, we still need to develop better batteries, alternative fuels and materials, carbon capture technology. And what you see in Europe is dovetailing with Sarah's comments, they proposed this import tariff called the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. And basically that's in order to ensure some more global competitiveness with different regulations in different countries. So the proceeds of that would be part of the EU's budget. And that actually be used to finance either the EU's recovery, some of its green transitions. And more broadly, it doesn't only need to be these green initiatives. It could be social or community projects as well, particularly for some of those communities that are most exposed to the worst impacts of climate change 
or are just simply underserved by some of our current resources. Another option is funneling it back to consumers more broadly, because a lot of these carbon pricing initiatives are expected to drive up the cost of energy, and they're going to impact input prices. And those might be passed on to the consumer in many cases. So if that is the case, then either revenue from those taxes can go back to the consumer through funding specific programs. You could see a cut in payroll taxes or even direct rebates, sort of like a dividend back to the consumer, such that then the consumer doesn't have to bear the brunt of this energy transition. Lastly, I would say the U.S. and countries around the world have really driven up their deficits over the last year and a half just due to the pandemic. So deficit reduction is also not another bad option. Excellent. I think you're on to something with the idea of the climate dividend. I think we should coin that term here today because it sounds like that's going to be definitely a piece of the puzzle here as we look forward. You know, speaking of the other pieces of the puzzle, Sarah, we've talked about carbon pricing up until this point, you know, obviously another way of offsetting emissions is vis-a-vis forestry. So I guess for somebody who isn't terribly informed on the world of forestry, let's start with a simple question. I mean, how many trees would we need to plant in order to offset global emissions? And furthermore, what is the underlying capacity to expand and extend forestry efforts here over time, given that it can be used in conjunction with things like carbon taxes to help us achieve those long-term emission reductions? If we wanted to be able to offset the entire Russell 3000, we would need to double the amount of forestry worldwide. So every single tree and plant that is currently in existence around the world on the land surface, we would need to actually double that. And that's just the Russell 3000, the U.S. stock market. For global emissions, it's actually five times that. So this problem of how many emissions there are globally versus what we have available right now in terms of forestry is limited. However, the only technology that we really have today to be able to offset emissions are these nature-based solutions, of which forestry is the one that is the major solution that we have today. And so if you look at the voluntary carbon markets right now, roughly 40% to almost as much as 90% on some of them relates to forestry, actually, because it's the only technology that we really have is this nature technology right now to be able to create offsets and be able to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. So the way that carbon offsets through forestry are done right now is three main ways. So one of them is reforestation. It's places where trees have been cut down or they've been lost through whatever process, sometimes also post-wildfire major storm event that causes damages, and it's replanting those trees and then sequestering carbon in new trees where trees have previously been. The second one is afforestation. It's actually planting forests and having a tree farm where forests never existed before. These have come under increased scrutiny in certain parts of the world where they've been planted, where people thought that they could have trees, and they've put these fast-growing trees into the ground. And they've resulted in massive removal of water actually from the water table, which actually increased drought susceptibility in those regions. So afforestation has to be done extremely carefully for understanding local ecology to be able to not lead to those negative impacts on the water tables. The third one has been avoided deforestation, saying that if you pay me money for this plot of land, I will not cut these trees down. And again, that's another one that's become under increased scrutiny over time for this leakage problem. If you don't cut down one plot, does the plot next door get cut down? So the three main ways are reforestation, afforestation, deforestation. So forestry programs, when they're being built and when they have them, they can actually lead to all sorts of other positive impacts. So really high quality forestry offset program 
also allows for building of biodiversity, thinking about biodiversity and conservation and local communities and their engagement in the conservation projects, because many of these projects require the forest to stand there for several decades, 40 years, up to 100 years. And so for the longevity of these projects to be able to sequester that carbon for those really, really long time, you need the whole community engaged in it to be able to not cut it down and to be able to support this effort. Beyond that, I expect that there'll be new tiers for forestry going into the future. What I've mentioned of this biodiversity of conservation, there's many different sustainability goals to a really good forestry project that could be developed to make really high quality forestry offsets that also create a pricing mechanism to deliver on multiple sustainability goals. Very helpful. As I look out my home office window at some forever green space, I certainly hope that they leave it here. But I think your point is very well made and very well taken. You know, Mira, while we're talking about forestry and the offset market, whether it's pricing initiatives, forestry, will the offset market end up becoming inflationary? You know, we usually talk about inflation as being driven by a mismatch between supply and demand. Given what's happening from a regulatory angle, we can see the demand for a lot of this stuff is increasing and arguably, based on what Sarah just said in the case of forestry, we're still looking at somewhat of a limited supply. And so what are your thoughts around pricing in the offset market over time? And how worried should we be about inflation in that market in particular? The energy transition itself is likely to be pretty inflationary. I mean, a carbon tax would increase the prices of coal, of natural gas, of retail electricity, of gasoline prices. And the people, again, who are going to feel this the most are often the consumers and particularly even those lower income households for whom utilities and gasoline are pretty big portions of their household budgets. And then, of course, for companies, higher energy prices mean higher production costs, and that's going to be a headwind for profits. And we're seeing this happen right now. So there's been some wind intermittency issues in Europe that have helped to drive up the cost of natural gas. And I think this is a great example of what we're likely to see going forward. We're going to see a bit more price volatility during episodes like this, particularly in natural gas, which is kind of considered one of the cleaner fossil fuels. It's often that transitional energy source for those trying to move from fossil fuels to renewables. And look, this is a necessary transition overall. It's going to feel painful at times for both consumers and companies, but it's going to also require a lot of care and preparation to get it right. And if we think about forestry in particular, look, to Sarah's point, the supply-demand imbalance is certainly there, and that's going to drive up prices in that sector. But let's think about it in a slightly different perspective. If we think about forestry as an asset, more specifically something like timber, I think that could actually be viewed in a portfolio context more as an inflation hedge. It is a real asset. It is an uncorrelated asset when we think about other components within a portfolio. And it's also, again, an asset that's likely to experience this price appreciation when we think about the supply and demand dynamics. So from a portfolio perspective, it can actually serve multiple purposes. I think that's a really important point. And in a world where the bond market effectively offers you one of two things, either protection without income or income without protection, we see clients increasingly looking to real assets, things like real estate, infrastructure, timber, just to name a few, because not only do they provide that inflation protection that you highlighted, they tend to lack correlation to both stocks and bonds, and furthermore, provide streams of income that are comparable to what one could get from the credit side of the equation. And so, you know, I think that there are really two angles here. One, obviously, trying to reduce carbon emissions is arguably the right thing to do. But two, there are some beneficial portfolio implications stemming from this, given what investors have on their mind in the current environment. 
Sarah, sticking with the topic of forestry, just kind of wondering from my vantage point, do you have a perspective on carbon avoidance offsets versus carbon removal offsets? And maybe we can just start by talking about the difference between those two and then, you know, a preference that you may or may not have one way or the other. I think you're getting to the point, and Miro was also touching on this, that standards around offsets are still developing and vary across voluntary and compliance market. For these registries, they each create their own standards of what you need to do to be able to get an offset. It's still the really early days for this, and they've been evolving even over the last decade that they've come into existence. So avoidance ones are becoming much more tenuous to be able to do. The whole point of it was to create financial incentives for projects. And avoidance projects in the early days really were created to provide these financial incentives to do these activities for carbon removal. But as carbon becomes more valuable and as leakage issues with avoidance offsets also occurs and it is continuously monitored and there's reports of it out, it's damaging the ability to use those avoidance offsets. And it's also becoming increasingly a reputational risk for purchasing some of those avoidance offsets if the reputation of using those offsets with the bad examples of what have happened in the past where an avoidance offset for one plot of forestry land leads to the next plot over being removed, that isn't really sustaining the goal of having that stop and having the carbon sequestered in the forest. And so I think increasingly these avoidance offsets will come under increased scrutiny and also be seen as reputational risks. There might also be tiering of the different types of forestry offsets between an avoidance offset versus a removal offset through reforestation or afforestation. And so the quality of these offsets, the potential for reputational risks may lead to changes in pricing across different types of offsets going forward. Certainly a lot to chew on with this topic in general, and I know we're getting close to the end of our time together here today. And so would love to have both of you share some thoughts. You've been a great team in terms of helping us understand where we are today and how we've gotten to this point over the course of not just the past couple of years, but the past couple of decades. You know, thinking 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and Mira, maybe starting with you, what additional technologies could be developed to offset emissions that could present interesting investment opportunities in the future? You know, a lot of our listeners are investors. The majority of our listeners are investors. And so we'd love to kind of wrap up our conversation here today by tying everything back to the underlying investment opportunity set and how it may be changing in light of what we've talked about here over the course of the past 20 or so minutes. Well, about 45% of emissions reductions need to come from technologies that are just not commercially viable yet. So we have a lot of work to do when it comes to R&D, and we're going to hopefully see more funding from the government on that. They really need to kind of lead the way. But what we've seen more recently is huge fundraising efforts on the private side from both private equity investors, also venture capital. And what they're really targeting here is the next generation of green innovation. So I'm pretty excited to see what comes out of that. And I would say all the IPCC scenarios to be able to stay below two degrees or 1.5 degrees Celsius, they require the mechanical removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and ocean by 2060. And they require that scaling up to be on par with what forestry is today to be able to limit global warming, but also to start reducing global warming by the end of the century. And so those types of technologies, as Mira commented, they don't really exist yet. They don't exist at scale. There's one factory that is doing carbon capture from the atmosphere right now in Iceland, and it's in Iceland because there's tons of renewable energy available to be able to power it because it's so power intensive to do that. And so the emergence of these new types of technologies to be able to sequester carbon 
be able to remove it from the atmosphere and either bury it under land or be able to remove it and even create new products from it. There's these new technologies that are starting to develop where you remove carbon from the ocean and actually turn it into plastics. So it gets us away from using plastics that are oil-based to be able to use plastics that are now sequestering carbon from the ocean. And so there'll be a proliferation of these new types of technologies, and they're all in the very early stages right now. And there's hopes that in the next 10, 20 years, these will be the technologies that will develop and will scale, be the technologies we need for the future to be able to reduce climate change going forward and potentially reverse it by the end of the century. Fantastic. First of all, both of you, thank you so much for joining me today. I know I learned a lot. I thought this was eye-opening in a number of different ways, both in terms of bettering my own understanding about what's going on in the world of emission reduction and movements toward a more sustainable approach within the context of the environment more broadly, and then doing a nice job of tying it to the investment implications, which is obviously front of mind for a lot of our listeners. So thank you both again for joining me. And I think we'll have to bring you both back soon for part two. Thank you for having us. Thanks, David. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Thank you. Recorded on September 28th, 2021. Not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for informational purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Latin America, for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be. 
in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 197601586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376919. For all other markets in APAC to intended recipients only. For US only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2021, JPMorgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved.